Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. We're looking this morning at uh, verses 16 through 22. In uh, Matthew chapter 23, we're returning to this section. We've been here for some time now. Looking, uh, beginning in verse 13 and and, uh, running through verse 33 under a kind of a overarching subject line called the judgment of false shepherds. This is the fourth in the series, the judgment of false shepherds. There are eight indictments here in this text that Jesus provides. Actually, there's seven here in the text, but uh, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you understand why I say eight. Uh, indictments of the false shepherds of the nation of Israel. These woes that Jesus pronounces upon the leadership happen on Tuesday afternoon of the Passion Week. I don't want to ever forget where we are in that grand scheme of things. Monday and Tuesday of Passion Week have been an intense series of of confrontations between Jesus and the, and the leadership of the nation as he has presented himself by overwhelming biblical proof that he is indeed the chosen, the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah of the nation, their rightful king. And yet they have turned from him. And by turning from him, they have turned from any hope they might possibly have of redemption. And so there is nothing left for them at this point. And Jesus begins to pronounce these these woes, these judgments upon the leadership and through the leadership upon the nation itself who have followed their leader into such wicked apostasy. The fourth woe we're looking at this morning, the fourth indictment, is that the false shepherds of Israel are encouraging prevarication among the people. They encourage prevarication among the people. Let's pray and ask for God's help in uh, understanding this text and applying it, that his spirit would apply it to our hearts. Father, thank you for our time together this morning in the word of God. Thank you that you have given us the scriptures. Thank you, our Father, for those that have gone before us who have paid sometimes in their own blood for the privilege of us having the very word of God in our own heart language. We sit here, our Father, with our own personal copy of the Word of God on our lap. We pray now that as we begin to look at and to study and to think about the passage before us this morning, that your Spirit would be our teacher, that you would help us, our Father, to remain alert, to pay attention, to think, to follow along, to reason together. And, Father, that your Spirit would apply the truth here to our individual circumstances. Our Father, how easy it would be to sit here and pass judgment upon those who have gone before us and fail to realize that in doing so, in pointing the finger at them, we have those fingers pointing back at us. Oh God, may your spirit work in each and every one of us this morning that we would understand, that we would believe, and that we would draw close to Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Our brother John read for us this morning... From Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. The third of those Ten Commandments, the third commandment says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name 
in vain. That is a very serious thing. The name of the Lord stands for his being, his character, his nature, and his teaching. That is the sum of all who he is and what he stands for. And to take his name in vain means essentially to misuse it or to consider it of no value. That is to to devalue God, to devalue God. Now, the implications of the third commandment are are far-reaching. We could preach a series on the third commandment itself. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to apply it in the the narrow context here to the topic of truth-telling. The topic of truth-telling. The topic of honesty. The topic of honesty. Beloved, the Bible tells us that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 says exactly that. God cannot lie. Hebrews chapter 6 And verse 18 says exactly that. God cannot lie. It is contrary to his very nature. It's not that God, it's not just that God does not lie. God cannot lie. God cannot lie. He is, according to Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 16, the God of truth. He is the God of truth. It is his nature. To be truth and to speak truth. Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse 6, right? That I am the way, the the life, and the... And I messed it up. (laughs) Help me out. The way, truth, and the life. That's what happens when you get it out of order. You completely lose the handle. He is the truth. It is his nature. It is his nature. But there's one whose nature is that of a liar. All right, John chapter 8 and verse 44. And Jesus tells us that Satan is a liar by nature. When he lies, he expresses his nature. It's who he is. He is the father of lies. The father of lies. Now, beloved, that, that presents a stark contrast. There is... There is God who is truth and in whom there is no lie, no shadow. And there is Satan who is very nature is that of a liar. It is is as stark as the contrast between black and white. There is no compromise. There is no closeness. There is no nearness. There is no overlap. Satan is a liar. God is true. God is true. And because God is true, God, the God of truth, takes vows very, very seriously. God takes vows very, very seriously. To invoke the name of God in support of a false promise profanes the name of the God of truth. And God is not happy about that. In fact, God will not let that go unpunished. It is a very serious sin. To vow 
in a false way, to promise in a false way is to bring oneself into a position to receive the wrath of God. Now that applies, by the way, whether the promise is to God or to someone else. It doesn't matter whether it is to God or to someone else. God takes promises, God takes vows very, very seriously. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, and beginning in verse 21, we read, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you. And the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Basically, what it says is, is if you make a promise to God, you had better fulfill it. Because God takes it very seriously. You are not under compulsion to promise God anything. But once you do, you're committed. We see that worked out, by the way, in the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, right? Do you remember that? Ananias and Sapphira, do you remember that couple? The church here was not long in existence. And there was such a spirit of generosity there in the early church. And people were were selling property and they were contributing the the proceeds of the sales of property to the church in order to care for those that were disadvantaged among them. And then along comes this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And they vow, they, they promise that they're going to sell a piece of property too. And they're going to give all the proceeds of the sale of this property to the Lord. But probably what happened is they, they underestimated what the property would actually fetch in the open market. They probably thought it was worth, um, you know, a, a smaller amount. And when they actually sold it and they realized how much they got from it, they began to have second thoughts, right? And so they contributed to the Lord the amount that they thought they would probably get for the property. And they held back the difference for themselves. And God dealt very sternly with that couple, didn't he? And Peter says to them there, listen, while the property was yours, you were free. You could have sold it or kept it or doing whatever you want. But because you vowed, because you vowed and did not pay, you have lied to the Spirit of God. And God executed both husband and wife right on the spot. Right on the spot. God is very serious, very serious about promises made to him. He is equally serious about promises made to other. James chapter 5 and verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment so you may not fall into judgment beloved honesty is a commodity that is in short supply in our culture in our society honesty is in short supply 
It is one of the casualties that results from our lack of the fear of the Lord as a nation. We do not fear God. And because we do not fear God, telling the truth, being honest, is not all that important anymore. It is the mark of an apostate society. An apostate society. The prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 9, in verse 3, speaking of the nation of Israel in their apostasy, says they bend their tongue like their bow. Interesting expression, huh? They bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. They do not know me. Beloved, we live in a time and in an age in which honesty is a lost commodity. Think about these things with me. Handshakes. You know that sort of quaint old custom? Handshakes don't mean anything anymore. It's just a social greeting now that we do, but, but it once meant something. To shake hands with someone on a particular agreement was, as they say, your word is your bond. If we shook hands on it, it would be fulfilled. It would be fulfilled. I can remember when I broke into banking 35, more than 35 years ago, that there used to be, we used to make loans based on handshakes. You would go out to a, to a business and, and you would negotiate the terms of the loan and then you would shake hands. Now, it was later written up to be sure, but the initial deal was, was struck by the mere shaking of hands that committed both parties to the deal. And if you did not follow through once shaking hands, your reputation would be destroyed and you wouldn't do business again. We used to just shake hands on things. Psalm chapter 15 and verse 4, speaking of integrity, says that the man of integrity swears to his own hurt and does not change. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. That is, he gives his word for something, and then later he comes to find out that if he fulfills the promise, it's going to hurt him, and yet he fulfills his promise anyway. He fulfills his promise anyway. How about those truth in advertising laws? Truth in advertising laws. Now, it's a, it's a reality, it's a fact that, that salesmen and uh, marketeers have a long history of making false and deceptive statements. That's nothing new. It probably goes back as, uh, to the earliest yard sale, I imagine. Right? Sure it works, you bet. So that sort of goes with the turf, right? We, we used to speak of a snake oil salesman. I was in the 19th century where all kinds of, of uh, potions and remedies would be sold to, to try to help people with the various illnesses and uh, things that they were experiencing. And, and they were mostly alcohol and sometimes some rather harmful additives. So the snake oil salesman has been with this society for a very, very long time, but But it's interesting, with the advent of television in the late 1940s, 
It took the misrepresentations of the salesman and the marketeer from the, from the lo- local corner where he'd stand on a little podium, right, and holler out, one come, one come all, to now broadcast over the television waves, and you could rip people off at a massive level. And so in the 1940s, we really began to see these truth and advertising laws start to come in place. Even the FDA, right? The Food and Drug Administration was uh, founded initially because there was so much false and uh, actually harmful food product and medicines being sold. So it's not just a recent phenomenon. It is, it is something that has been with us for quite some time. Let me ask you this. Um, when you uh, buy something these days, how many of you... Uh, Go to the websites and check the customer reviews before you buy, huh? Most. We check the customer reviews. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? I think it's because we're not really sure what we're buying, right? We don't really trust them to sell us what they're representing that they're going to sell us. That it will really work. Nor do we trust that their customer service will, will be there if we needed any, and, and something's wrong with it, right? So much junk is sold and so much shoddy customer service that now it's about reviews. If you don't get four and a half stars, I'm not buying your stuff. So where we live in. We distrust people. We distrust leaders and officials pretty much as a class of people. Pretty much as a class of people. Why? Because they have lied so many times. So many times. We regularly assume politicians are what? Lying to us. That is our normal normal assumption about them. When they stand and say something, we assume they are lying. We assume advertisers are lying. We assume the military is now lying to us. We assume the police lie to us. We assume that even preachers regularly lie to us. We don't trust those that are in authority, those that are leaders. We don't trust them anymore. What a world we've inherited. We have become a society of prevaricators. Now, I suppose I better define the term. I've used it a bunch of times, right? Some of you went home and looked it up. To prevaricate, it's such a good word, I had to use it. To prevaricate means to stray from or evade the truth. To prevaricate, to stray from or evade the truth. Put it into your vocabulary. Start using it. When truth becomes divorced from the character of God, then the father of lies moves in and takes over. It's worth saying it again. When truth becomes divorced from the character of God, then the father of lies moves in and takes over. And that is exactly the situation in Israel in the time of Christ. 
That is exactly their situation. The nation of Israel under the leadership of the scribes and the Pharisees had developed lying to an art form. It was now an art form. They practiced what one might reasonably call evasive swearing. Evasive swearing. That is pretending to promise something while at the same time leaving yourself an out, an escape clause, in case you later decide you really don't want to fulfill the promise. So you give every indication that you are making a most solemn commitment, a most solemn promise, while at the same time, you've left yourself a back door. Now let's read the text, beginning in verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. Meaning it's not binding. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important? The gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men. Which is more important? The offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. All right, here's our outline for this morning. It's a simple outline. Jesus' condemnation of prevarication explained and applied. Explained and applied so that we might resist the natural inclination to shade the truth. We're going to explain this and then we're going to apply it. Because, beloved, there is a natural inclination in each and every one of our hearts to shade the truth. So let's begin. Pharisaical prevarication explained. Explained. Now, to the Jew of the first century, an oath was absolutely binding, provided... It was a binding oath. Let me say it again. To the Jew of the first century, an oath was absolutely binding, provided it was a binding oath. You're already beginning to get an idea, aren't you? They recognized the repeated statements throughout the Mosaic law about the seriousness of vows made in the name of the Lord. And so their leadership taught, and quite appropriately, any oath which employed the name of the Lord was binding and must absolutely be kept. This includes oaths, they taught, that even employed the letters associated with the divine name. 
So if you, if you made an oath in the name of the Lord, it was an absolutely binding oath. It must be kept no matter what the circumstances, even if you use merely a couple of letters from the divine name. For example, they taught that an oath by heaven and by earth is not binding, but an oath by Aleph Dalet which are the first two letters of the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the word, English word Lord, is binding. Because it utilizes two letters from the divine name. Therefore, it is a binding oath. A yod, uh, uh, an oath that uses uh, a yod and a hey, another, the first two letters of the divine name Yahweh, that's a binding oath. So if it's in the name of the Lord, or it uses any of the letters from the name of the, of the Lord, it is a binding oath. Now the idea behind all this was simply this. If God's name was used, God became a partner in the transaction. Whereas if God's name was not used, then God had nothing to do with the transaction. Right? If you use his name or any part of his name, then he becomes a partner to the transaction, a partner of the promise. And therefore, it must be kept. But if you, if you keep his name out, then he has nothing to do with it. And it becomes a non-binding oath. Now, you can, you can imagine there would be no end to the opportunity to discuss, to argue about how binding was a particular oath. How close does it come to being related to the name of God? And thus, how binding is it? Loopholes all over the place. Loopholes all over the place. You can get out of it if you just phrase it in the right way. Imagine being on the receiving end of that. Now, what did, what did you say again? Which letters did you use? So Jesus exposes here in verses 16 through 19 the loopholes. He's exposing a couple of the loopholes that are part of this culture of deceit. Because that's really what we're talking about. They had a culture of deceit. Woe to you blind guides. Who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. That is that it's not binding. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. Well, how much gold? Fools. Blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctify the gold? Again, whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. It's not binding. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. Blind men. Blind men. He calls them blind and fools. That's strong language. Blind and fools. I mean, they saw themselves as as the one who would lead the people in truth. That was their position, right? They were the leaders. They were the teachers of the nation of Israel. They were the spiritual guides and leaders of the nation. They are going to be the ones to lead the people into truth. But, but the reality of the matter is they cannot see the truth. Jesus says they're blind. Spiritually blind is what I would tell you. They are spiritually blind. Why? Because they have a heart like stone. Furthermore, they have rejected the source of truth. 
And so they are fools. Psalm 14 and verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. They are spiritually blind. They are biblically fools. And that's what Jesus says. Now, there's a difference of opinion here as to exactly, background-wise, what's going on. Whether Jesus is calling out some, some precise uh, oath formulas, you know, I swear by the temple to, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Or whether Jesus is just characterizing the whole culture of evasive oaths and employing what is known as a, a reductio ad absurdum. That's a nice little Latin phrase. What it means is to demonstrate that something is false and untenable because of absurd results will come from the use of it. So it may be that that there's actually, they used to swear, and, and as I say, there's a difference of opinion here. They actually swore by the temple or they swore by the offering on the altar, but it's possible that that's not exactly what was happening, and he's just carrying their evasiveness to its, to its ultimate conclusion. It would lead them into such foolish statements. It really doesn't matter in the ultimate to, to sort of decide that. You can kind of come where you like there. The reality of the matter is that, that in this society, in this time, this world of deceit and dishonesty, people thought it was possible to, to swear an oath and have it not be binding. They sought to evade the truth by quibbling about the form of the words in which the pledge was expressed. This is deceitful, and it's illogical. It's illogical. Jesus says, listen, the the holiness of the gold... And the holiness of the sacrifice derives the holiness from the, from the place where they are offered. It's the principle of Exodus chapter 29 and verse 37. The altar sanctifies the offering upon it. The temple sanctifies the gold. The holiness ultimately comes from God, whose temple and altar they are, right? In their blindness, they failed to think through the implications of what true holiness means in terms of God as the source of it and his people as the reflectors of his character. Now, it would be very easy to sit here this morning and think how blind and how foolish. And we would never do things like that. We would never do things like that. But, beloved, we have our own absurd expressions. If you really think about it. For example, we punctuate our speech with to tell the truth. Well, to tell the truth. So the other stuff is not true. I'm not lying. I'm not lying. This time. I'm not kidding. Honestly. Honestly, yeah. Honestly, I'm not lying. (laughs) Honestly, to tell the truth, I'm not lying. 
I mean, we stack them up. Why do we have to stack them up? People don't believe us. Seriously. Seriously. To tell the truth, honestly, I'm not lying. (laughs) How many formulas do we need? After exposing these uh, loopholes, Jesus expresses a principle here, beginning in verse 20. He expresses an overarching principle. I want to look, with the, look at you with the principle, and then I want to apply it, the time we have left. Therefore, he says, in verse 20, you see it? Therefore. It means he's drawing a conclusion. Therefore. Whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. You can't slice it and dice it that way. Whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. He just sweeps the whole thing away. All of their flawed reasoning by pointing out to them that the the greater includes the lesser. The greater includes the lesser. Listen, a temple is only a temple because it's the place where God dwells. Otherwise, it's just a building. So to invoke the temple is to invoke God. To invoke the altar is to invoke the God to whom the altar has been erected to offer the sacrifices. You can't just exclude him. And Jesus goes on, right, where he talks about heaven. And in Matthew chapter 5, where he addresses the same topic, he includes earth. And he says simply this. Listen, this is the heart of the matter. God sits above his creation. He is over all. You understand that? God sits above his creation and he is over all. That is nothing that we say or do in his creation can exclude him. You cannot cut him out. It doesn't have anything to do with how you formulate the promise. You cannot cut God out. God is over all. See, contrary to the Jewish idea that, that a certain oath formula makes God a party to the promise, right? And, and if you leave that out, then God has nothing to do with the promise. Jesus says that is absolutely not true. Jesus asserts that God is the party to every promise. God is the party to every promise. In fact, you cannot keep him out. You don't need to invite him in. You cannot keep him out. It is his creation. Heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool. That's a comprehensive statement of saying he is sovereign over his entire creation. You can't keep him out. That's the principle. You cannot keep him out. God is over all. So let's apply that. Let's apply it in the time we have left. First off, it means this. For the child of God, there is no such thing as a secular and a sacred. 
There is no such thing as a secular and a sacred. There is not a part of your life that is, that is secular. That means it has nothing to do with God. And then there is the sacred part that has to do with God. You understand that? Life cannot be divided into compartments. Some which involve God and some which do not. Oh, here we are Sunday morning, you know, we've gathered in this place. This is God's house, and, and God is here with us. But when we leave here, right, then we go to the other guy's place. And God has nothing to do with that. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. My life, your life, it doesn't consist of compartments. Some that have God and some that don't. God is involved in every aspect of life. Therefore, all that we say and all that we do to, again, use the Latin, is corum Deo, before the face of God. It is before the face of God. So let's look at some examples. Let's try to apply this a little bit. I'm just going to suggest a few examples for you, and then you get the idea, and then you need to really begin to run with this yourself. There's something to think about. Horum Deo, before the face of God. In the realm of business ethics. The realm of business ethics. All right, business. Well, you know, business doesn't include God. That's business. Oh, no. no. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 11. Very interesting proverb. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 11. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. Isn't that interesting? A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. That's talking about business. At its, at its simplest level, you go to the marketplace and you, and you want to buy a, you know, a pound of grapes. And it needs to be put on the balance scale. And they need to put the proper amount of weight on there so that you get a pound of grapes. You get what you paid for. Merchants are, were famous for having two sets of weights. I can remember as a child when we used to go to the delicatessen my father's saying, you know, when they, when they put the meat up on the deli scale, watch, make sure they don't put their thumb on the scale. Because you're buying the meat, not their thumb. God is concerned. Listen, if God is concerned about the weights, right, that are in a bag, little, you know, they're in this dark little bag on the guy's waist... If God cares about that at that level, then God certainly cares about the larger decisions of business ethics. Everything we do in the realm of commerce is quorum Deo. It is before the face of God. God is concerned. He is involved. So caveat emptor, another Latin boy. Today is the day, right? Let the buyer beware. No. No. That is not how God does business. And it's not how the people of God are to do business. We need to be distinctly honest. 
distinctly truth-telling in the realm of business. Now, I probably should say something here because somebody's going to ask me afterwards, so I'll cut you off at the pass. Okay? Truth-telling does not necessarily mean you must tell everything you know. If you swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you, God, you need to do it. There are illustrations in the scriptures. One that sticks out in my mind is God's instructions to Samuel when it's time to anoint David, right? And he says, Saul is going to kill me if I tell him I'm going to announce to anoint David as the king. And he says, take a lamb with you and sacrifice the lamb and then anoint David. And if Saul says anything, tell him you're going to sacrifice the lamb. And that's what he does. Okay, so I'm not talking about, a, about a, some sort of radical honesty where every single thought that goes through your mind must blab out of your lips. Wow, you look terrible this morning. <laughs> right? Who cut your hair? Those clothes don't match. What kind of junky car is that you drive? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that goes through our minds that should not come out of our mouth, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. But what we do speak, we need to speak honestly. So it's business. It's a realm of business ethics. Beyond that, it's the, it's the whole realm of speech. The children of God, beloved, do not need truth enhancers. We do not need truth enhancers. What I mean by that is that our, that our word is our bond. Let our yes be yes and our no, no. That's all we need. I don't need to say, honestly, I'm not kidding. Seriously, telling you the truth this time. Right? We don't need those things. We shouldn't use those things. Our character should not require those things. No truth enhancers. Or integrity demands that we do what we say we'll do. The righteous man swears to his own hurt and does not change. We give our word, we need to fulfill it. All right, how many of you coming to prayer meeting tonight? Just check. Just check. Beyond that, we need to value truth higher than expediency. We need to value truth higher than expediency. We should not, uh, first question we should ask shouldn't be, does it work? Does it work? The first question we should ask is, is it true? Is it true? Not does it work? You know, I said this and that, and I, you know, and this, and this is what I, you know, the outcome. That's irrelevant. Did you, did you say this or that? Was it true? Was it true? Proverbs 23 and verse 23, one of my favorite Proverbs, buy truth and do not sell it. Buy truth and do not sell it. That is, be a consumer, be, a, be an accumulator of truth, not one who, dis, who gives it away, gets rid of it, sells it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. Buy truth, do not sell it. So value truth higher than expediency. We are in love in our society with the whole notion of whether it works. With little regard for whether it's true. Fourth, 
Do not tolerate deceit in yourself or in others. Do not tolerate deceit first in yourself and then in others. And I'm thinking here particularly moms and dads in your children. Do not tolerate deceit in your children. Okay? Lying is a direct assault upon a relationship. When someone lies to you, what they have said to you is, I do not value this relationship. And I will deceive you in order to get what I want and trash this relationship. That's a serious thing. It's a very serious thing. Listen, raising children, one or more of them will lie to you. Guaranteed. But if I can give you a a parenting tip, my parenting tip for you would be this, that the lying is more serious than anything else they've done. Whatever the crime is, the lie is more serious than the crime. Deal with that first. Deal with that first. Do not tolerate deceit in yourself or in others. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25, therefore, he's talking about the, the new life in Christ said, you used to live this way, now this way. You are the new creation in Christ. Therefore, as the new creation in Christ, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. Reason for, that's the reason, for we are members of one another. We are in relationship together. We are in relationship together. We cannot lie to each other because we are part of something the family of god the family of god deceit dishonesty lying is something that we are all guilty of at one level or another it is something that i would say to you that every single one of us has practiced If you tell me you have never lied, I will say to you, you just lied. (laughs) Right? It is a consequence of the fall. It is that which associates with that old man in Christ, that old Adamic nature, that fallen nature. power to overcome deceit, dishonesty, is the power of the gospel, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. The power of the gospel is the power to break the bond of deceit that grips the human heart, and to begin to live God's life after him, to, to, to begin to live like God. We started, we said, right? God cannot lie. It is not his nature. He is the God of truth. And his children should not lie, must not lie. And the power to overcome lying is the power of the gospel. As we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
We are saved not just initially from the eternal condemnation for our sin, but we are, we are saved in the here and the now from the power of the bondage of sin. Now, it's a fight. It's a hand-to-hand combat. And if, and if, and if our life has, has been characterized by deceit, then the combat is even more difficult. And we, and we all have those places where it's a hard, hard fight. But as we rely on the power of the indwelling Spirit of God to do His work in us, as we saturate our heart and mind in the Word of God, as we pray and ask the Spirit of God to open our eyes to the truth and apply the truth to our heart, we can begin to make progress. And we do what Paul says. We lay aside falsehood and we begin to speak truth one to another. We stop living this way and in the power of the Spirit of God we begin to live this way. And it's a long time. It's a lifelong fight. But it's a fight we must undertake. We must undertake. As the children of God, those believing and committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be honest. We need to be honest. May God give us grace in the moment of temptation to bite our tongue to not speak until we've had a moment to think and then to tell the truth. Our Father, we thank you that you cannot lie. How terrifying it would be if, Father, even one small little untruth were to proceed from you. It would throw your entire character into question. Our Father, we can be absolutely certain of your honesty and your integrity. And we desire, O Lord, as your people made in your image, recreated in Christ to bear the image of God, to be conformed slowly and steadily by the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit through the understanding and application of his very word to us, we we desire to become more like Christ. to be people of honesty and integrity. Oh, Lord, may you help my brother or my sister this morning who is out here and in which there is some entrenched patterns of deceit, not to be discouraged, not to say there's no hope for me, but to recognize that in the power of of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there there is freedom. He has set you free. He who has been freed is free indeed, Jesus says. And Father, for those of us for whom lying is not the the greatest sin of bondage, yet the same, the temptations come. And sometimes they come out of seemingly nowhere. They catch us in a a moment unprepared. Oh, God, deliver us. We find ourselves having uttered something not true. May you grant us repentance to go back to that person and to confess our sin to seek their forgiveness and to speak the truth and make it right. Let us be distinctively Godlike in this. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.